a British TV podcast with Chrissy and Ryan. News, reviews, what's on TV this week, DVD releases, and special features all about British TV. Hello and welcome to the British TV podcast, show number 19. Oh, we're going to leave the teens behind. Woohoo. I'm Ryan in Seattle. I'm Chrissy in Seattle. How's your week been, Chrissy? It's been good. It's been good. Been busy. Getting a lot of projects done at work. We submitted goals today for the new CEO that we wanted to accomplish at work. So, you know. You mean the big boss back in... No. Oh. The Seattle big boss. Oh, okay. the Seattle Who big used boss. to be the second in charge and got promoted, so we know him. Oh, okay. He's not a brand new person to do backflips for, but... Oh. Well, I'm uh, homeless this week, so I'm living out of a hotel. Uh, mm-hmm. Me, the wife, and the cat, and uh, we've all settled in there, and it's given me an opportunity to watch lots of tape, so I have been just mainlining British TV, which is the best way to live. So, a good week for me, I'm concerned. I'd like to have my house back, though. <laughs> yeah, I watched a lot of television on Sunday because I'd been doing a catering gig on Saturday all day long, so I'm not used to that anymore. I used to work these 12-hour days on my feet, no problem, but no, I'm not used to it, so I was pretty t- tuckered out Sunday, so I watched a couple episodes of Hustle, a few episodes of Being Human, The Thing You Made Me Watch for Homework, everything. About 3 o'clock, I was going pretty hard and heavy through tapes, and I'm like, well, I'm going to turn over and watch the Super Bowl, or I'm going to watch this tape. I'm just going to watch this tape. You know, all the good stuff of the Super Bowl will be on, online anyway, and sure enough it was. I think I ended up seeing about 10 minutes of it, mostly because we were waiting for some Chinese food to get delivered. We were still in our house at this point. And then Monday morning, I was able to see all the good spots. There was, uh, I don't know if you saw it or not, there was a really funny one with David Letterman and I've heard Leno. about it, but yeah. I haven't. I've seen a still from it on... Online. And apparently it's the highest rated program of all time, so they say. Oprah. Mm-hmm. So, they count the BBC figures into it? Or no, just, just the, the oh, that's American right, that's right. Just domestic the United ones. States. Yeah, that's right. Probably the winter weather on the East Coast has a lot to do with that, because people weren't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we have this week news, what's on British TV this week, what's running in the United States, DVD releases, and a feature on the fall and rise of Saturday Night Telly. That's so. News. Sci-fi picks up both seasons of Merlin, which previously ran on NBC last summer. Well, NBC showed the first season, and the second season is subsequently shown on the BBC. It will begin in April with the first season, and the BBC has announced a third season, which will begin running in September in Britain. Merlin stars Colin Morgan as Merlin, Bradley James as Prince Arthur, Anthony Stewart Head as King Uther, and Richard Wilson as Gaius. It's kind of a Excalibur Jr., since they're all sort of young and teenager-y. But I, I enjoy it. I mean, good sword sorcery stuff. John Hurt plays the voice of a Dave's Ex Machina CGI dragon. <laughs> but it's, it's good stuff, and you know, it tweaks the Merlin legend quite a bit. Not that it hasn't been tweaked quite a bit itself, much like Robin Hood. I mean, there's so many different versions of it. But good fantasy adventure and, and cool for sci-fi. You know, we should point out that sci-fi is the uh, first and only broadcaster so far of the first season of the Sarah Jane Adventures, which they ran in prime time, unlike the BBC, which shows mm-hmm. it, at, you know, in a children's slot at five o'clock in the afternoon. You know, it's not all those crappy CGI giant snake movies that they run. So they're running Merlin, but they're going to remake Being Human. And that's... Well, BBC that's America runs Being Human. So. Yeah, that's very odd. You can't really do a remake of Merlin, though. You're not going to Americanize it. You might as well just buy the darn thing. And I guess they looked at the ratings on NBC and figured, hey, man, that looks pretty good. On Wednesday, fans of ITV1's Midsummer Murders will see actor Neil Dungeon become the star of the series as John Nettles retires after more than 80 episodes in 13 years. Dungeon, veteran of sitcom Life of Riley, as well as Survivors and Silent Witness, will play a cousin of Nettles' character, Tom Barnaby, John Barnaby, who also works in the police force. The 14th season of the series with Dungeon in the lead will begin shooting in July. You know, he usually plays kind of uh, grim, grim-faced guys who kind of talks with gritted teeth like this. It's one of those guys you've seen in a million different TV shows. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of those in Britain. They're like, oh yeah, that guy. Oh, and that guy's in it, and that guy too. 
In fact, I had to look one up finally because I was just, I've seen him in so many things. And it was a young character actor named Brian Dick who was on Being Human last week. But he's been in Torchwood and he was in Blackpool playing David Tennant's right-hand man. So, oh, right. you know, he just goes on back and back and back. But he's just another one with a pretty interesting face. So you go, oh, yeah, it's him again. Hmm. Ian Carmichael passed away on Friday. He played a pre-Hugh Laurie Bertie Wooster on World of Wooster in the 1960s, and the 1970s appeared as Lord Peter Whimsey in a series of BBC dramas based on the Dorothy L. Sayers books. Carmichael was 89. I had a tape collection of the Lord Peter Whimsey ones for a while. Hmm. Uh, they were released by Acorn Media. Don't know if they made them to DVD or not. So what's on TV for the week of February 10th to the 16th? And surprisingly, very little Olympic coverage in primetime. They're probably showing a lot of it live, which in Britain would make it the middle of the night. Mm, could well be. Yeah. I had a friend in England who used to get up in the middle of the night to watch American baseball all the time. So. Wow. We're not getting hardly any Olympic coverage here live on the West Coast. The NBC has deemed that we should get the digested, tape-delayed versions from whatever is being shown on the East Coast. So in a lot of cases, it'll be 12 and sometimes 16 hours old, the stuff that we end up watching here on the West Coast. The Forgotten Coast. Oh, well. But you have a friend who works for NBC, right? I do. She's there now. She went up on Friday. Friday? Yeah. I figured they would have been prepping for months. Well, some of them are. She's she's more... Sometimes she, she when, in Australia, she got sent a good six weeks early. And some people had been there for six months from her department, but this time they just kind of sent her out at the last minute. She's in the sound department, right? No, graphics. Oh, graphics. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. She's won three Emmys now for different for being on the team that's done various Olympics. And she has to be go to London in two years. Oh, what mm -hmm. a what a tough life. Wow. Actually, it's incredibly intense the shifts that these people oh have. i'm sure when they're those in those two yeah. weeks she doesn't come up for air no it's at least 14 hours a day often oh, yeah. a lot more straight although sometimes i think she's usually told don't count on any days off but occasionally they will get granted a day or two off but usually if they want to see any local sites at all they have to plan to stick around later or oh i would assume you would yeah. anyway just to mm -hmm. decompress or get on the right time schedule if you're going to tokyo or london or something like that you want to be uh awake yeah it's not like the old days when you know the abc would do the olympics and and give you live coverage or whatever like that but there was just one feed i mean they're supplying what eight different channels plus online things and stuff like that i mean mm -hmm. they've got to produce a lot of material plus they make all those biography things of different athletes and it's i imagine that she earns her paycheck she did and she found a husband by going to the, Gre the games in Greece, so that was a plus, too. Oh, lucky girl. Yes. Wednesday, BBC Two has the final installment of Jonathan Mead's documentary series Off Kilter on his travels around Scotland. Midsummer Murders has a two-hour mystery on ITV1, which we just told you about. Is this the last stand for Tom Barnaby? I would say yes. Well, maybe <laughs> like, he just walks off in the retirement, sunset, yes. I, I, they've not revealed how he actually leaves the series. Thursday on BBC One, Material Girl continues, followed by another two-part Silent Witness. BBC Two's comedy block starts with the topical news quiz Mock the Week, and then Rapsy Nesbitt and Bellamy's People. Season three of The Secret Diary of a Call Girl continues on ITV2 at 10 p.m. Also at 10, Skins is on E4. And Alan Carr, Chetty Man, is on Channel 4. He's becoming ubiquitous. He's the... Except he doesn't act, but it seems like for a while, Jonathan G. Vegas was everywhere. There have been periods where... Um, and they have Alan Carr on the BBC now, too. Jimmy Carr was showing up on just about everything. Yes. If you're um, doing commercial breakdown, mm -hmm. you have officially become overexposed. And um, Rob Bryden, he, he does a lot, too. He's, he's, he's presenting uh, Would I Lie to You Now? Oh, didn't know that. But, but I think I think I saw a trailer that because instead of Angus Deaton, there he was. I don't think anyone will soon break David Tennant's record of seventy-five appearances within a two-week period, leading up to the end of Doctor Who. But that included radio, though. That's true. But still, I think Alan Carr is kind of edging his way up there too. He seems to have a lot going on. 
Friday on BBC One, Barry Humphreys, Dame Edna herself, is one of the contestants on QI this week. Yay! Followed by the conclusion of Silent Witness. And he'll be as Barry, not Dame Edna. I do like Barry Humphreys. He seems a jolly fellow. Yes. And he's he's a really good actor, too. Oh, yeah. I've seen Just... very, uh, quite a few different profiles of him. And, and you know, he's a, he's a serious guy. Mm-hmm. On Channel 4, Jimmy Carr's quiz show, 8 Out of 10 Cats, continues. Friday Night with Jonathan Ross on BBC One includes guests Jeff Bridges, Oscar nominee, nominee Jeff Bridges, Westlife, and Courtney Love with Hole. Oh, so Westlife will save it from being an all-American show then. All right. Saturday, Harry Hill's TV Burp is on ITV One right after the FA Cup Live. Sunday, Lark Rise to Kendalford continues on BBC One. And over on ITV One, Wild at Heart continues. On BBC Three, more of the second season of Being Human. My current craze. Monday, the documentary series The Lakes continues on ITV One. Channel Four continues the documentary Tower Block of Commons, where a group of MPs spend eight days and nights living in a council estate tower. On Channel 5 is Paul Merton in Europe. How many parts was that? Because I thought it was to be four. The website only called for four, so I thought I'd got them all, and then yesterday five popped up. So I I guess he's just, well, I guess Europe is big. Maybe it just continues for ten. Who knows? But I I had thought I would think a a six-episode series would be typical. Yeah, his older series have been four or five, though. So, of course, he switched channels, I think, for this one, if I'm not mistaken. But... Hmm. Well, it just keeps going, which is fine for me. I like Paul. The last episode of Law & Order UK is Monday on ITV1. Tuesday, Survivors continues on BBC1. And Shameless continues on Channel 4. On BBC America this week, Friday night, it's Chat Show Night with Friday Night with Jonathan Ross and The Graham Norton Show. Two shows my mom does not miss anymore. She... Her, she records them and watches them, and she's really become a fan of both. I'll watch them if I like the guest. I might scan through. I'm the same way, too, because I've just got so much else I'd rather watch. But, yeah, I, I do enjoy it when I do, when there's a guest I want to see. Saturday, the American debut of the remake of Survivors, starring Julie Graham, Max Beasley, and Patterson Joseph, starts on BBC America. The premise is simple. A plague wipes out 99% of humanity, leaving just a few folks to band together and hope to keep alive. Unlike the original 70s series, where we never discovered how or what caused the plague, the credits just showed an anonymous Asian doctor. He drops a vial and then he collapses in an airport and then we see a montage of planes flying across the world and that just spreads the virus. In the new series, we are quickly introduced to mysterious scientists in a lab who might be behind it all, as well as thinking an answer to the cure lies within one of our lead characters. So there's a whole new plot thread here. So whereas the whole plague was a fait accompli in the original version, just an excuse to get on with the story, it's more central to this new one. So let's listen to a clip where most of the main characters connect for the first time in the middle of a motorway. So few of us left. Every new person feels like a gift. We don't know each other. We've got nothing in common. We survived! Isn't that... isn't that something? You told me I had to make a fresh start. Well, how can any of us do that on our own? I also told you that I have plans. Well, they can bloody well wait. This is more important. Everything we ever knew has been ripped away from us. Our old life is dead. Now we have to build a new one. And we can't do it alone. I'm going where she's going. All right. Just till you get yourself settled, then I'm away. Okay, boss. What do we do now? I would be happier then than the motorway scene in Triffids. Have you seen all of... Day of the Triffids. I haven't yet. seen part one yet. Because there was a motorway where all the poor people who'd been stranded in their cars blind or they look over from an overpass down on the motorway and the Triffids are busting through car windows and chomping on people left and right. So mm. 
Uh, this one is the deserted motorway. Ah. Julie Graham manages to have a, almost a cut-on collision with Patterson Joseph, and he gets annoyed, understandably. But then they say, but you're alive, so are you. And it goes on from there, or... Um, or there's some... He's trying to be Joe Loner, oh. and in fact, the clip, you hear that they're going to decide to... He's going to decide to stick around for a little bit. He does. So yeah, the great uh, Julie Graham there. We did a profile of her back in show 16. So that's Survivors beginning Saturday on BBC America. Sunday, there is another chance to see Doctor Who, The End of Time. Assuming that you haven't already bought the DVD or watched it on On Demand. Monday, there's new episodes of Top Gear. I discovered on, um, you had loaned me a long time ago or made me a copy of a Planet Mirth episode and Milton Jones was doing an awfully good Jeremy Clarkson. Everybody can do Jeremy Clarkson. He was pretty good. Is is Jeremy Clarkson Welsh or is that just Milton? But anyway. Jeremy Clarkson, like Jeremy Paxman is both extremely easy to parody because they're so distinctive. That's true. But this was, I think he was one of the first because Planet Mirth was a while ago, wasn't it? Well, there's been two versions of Top Gear. There was mm-hmm. sort of an original version, and they kind of regenerated the show and made it kind of more hip and groovy and modern, and that's the one that's been a huge hit for BBC, too. I guess I'd better watch it just once. Just, just I'll, I'll find an, a star I like in his reasonably priced car. Well, some of them are funny, like the one it. where they come to the United States, mm-hmm. and they drive around the South, and they just get into all these crazy hijinks. It's, it's quite funny. I like crazy hijinks. I'll watch that one. Yeah. All right. Where was we before I interrupted you with my... Witty aside. <laughs> uh, Wednesday on uh, Channel 4's high school comedy, The Inbetweeners, will be on BBC America. That's what's on this week there. The Independent Film Channel continues the third season of the Johnny Vegas comedy Ideal. Weekdays at 2 a.m. Eastern, 11 p.m. Pacific. Shameless is taking a week off from the Sundance Channel. It'll be back on the 19th. The third season of Billy Piper's Secret Diary of a Call Girl is Mondays on Showtime. On Adult Swim, on Friday night, starting at midnight, is their British comedy block, starting with The Office, Look Around You, The Mighty Boosh, and Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. And The Mighty Boosh and Garth Marenghi's Dark Place have a lot of uh, spillover into each other. Both the gents and the boosh show up in The Dark Place from time to time, and Richard and um, I think all of them except possibly Garth Marenghi have shown up in many boosh episodes. Adult Swim will officially become the coolest thing ever if they pick up man-to-man with Dean Lerner, which is a quasi-sequel mm-hmm. to Garth Marenghi, where Richard Awady's character, Dean Lerner, the publisher of Garth Marenghi's books, who is the world's worst actor, he can't act with somebody else in the room, gets his own chat show, and we find out what a real bastard he is. And then Matthew Holness. Yes is on as Garth Marenghi in one episode, but he plays a different episode in every character. And they're very different and very funny. In Man to Man, yeah. Yeah. Highly recommended. Yes. We like Richard I. Wade quite a bit. Of course, one of the stars of the IT crowd. DVD releases. The highlight this week is the Romola Gary 2009 version of Emma, now on sale. Its special features include little featurettes on locations, costumes, Music and an interview with actor Michael Gambone, who plays Emma's father. All right. I see something intriguing here coming up next. Should I say what it is, or are you just going to do it? Feel free to say what it is. Ryan has written down Test to the Doctor Who DVD. That's right. So, last week I got my box set of the Doctor Who DVD of the specials. And we're going to go over here to the DVD player. It's first time ever in podcast history. I'm going to take it out of the wrapping. It's in the wrapping right now. Let's see, tear it open here. Okay, so we're taking take it out. And what we're going to discover here is, is it true or not, is there commentary tracks on other episodes other than The End of Time? And I don't know, and I figured the best way to find out is to put one in and see. All right, the disc is in. Hit that button there. All right, we have the FBI warning. We have a the 2 Entertain logo. Get past that. Here's the BBC logo. An amusing PSA asking us not to pirate. I didn't, but this is legitimately bought DVD. All right. Here's the introduction. Instead of taking us to a TARDIS console or showing some Cybermen here, this is the next Doctor disc. So hit play. All right, we're playing the next Doctor here. 
And apparently there are no other audio channels. So this is it. There are no commentary tracks on the next Doctor. Well, boo. Well, guide here gives us any uh, clues here. Not on Planet of the Dead. Not on Waters of Mars. But out of commentary on the End of Time Part 1. David Tennant, Catherine Tate, and Euros Lynn. And Part 2, commentary with David Tennant, John Sim, and Eros Lynn. So only commentary tracks on two of the episodes. Way to go to entertain. So I'm going to eat crow a little bit here, and that is uh, a couple weeks ago I really slagged off ITV for not being able to produce decent comedy at all. And I think I've sort of found an except. Well, you, you thought Benadorm was good, although I didn't mm -hmm. think it was really a comedy. But I've seen one now that is sort of passable, and it's called Mumbai Calling. Have you seen that? Nope. They had a pilot, and then their series ran last year. It stars Sanji Baskar. Oh, love a man with dimples. From Goodness Gracious Me, he was in the famous Going for an English sketch we played a few weeks ago, and the Kumars at number 42. He plays Kenny Gupta, a middle manager of a British company who, because of he's of Indian descent, is sent to a call center in Mumbai to straighten things out. There he counters Dev Raja, the current boss, who's a bit of a dodgy dealer, but gets things done. Another London-based colleague, Terry Johnson, also arrives at the call center, but she takes a while to adapt to the Indian way of doing things. Now, some of the plot resolutions are like right out of 1970s sitcoms. They're a little too convenient, but there's some definite laughs from the material, and it's a chance to see a different culture on TV for a change. It's shot on location, uh, and it won't make anyone forget Blackadder, but like Benidorm, it's a single-camera film style, doesn't have a laugh track, and it wouldn't seem out of place on BBC Two, which is high praise for an ITV comedy. It ran last summer after having been shelled for nearly a year. It ran in Australia and in India first. <laughs> uh, so there's no talk of a second series. Now, did you see the film Outsourced? Yes. Yes. With, the, where they sent the Americans. Because Jeff Paul Jensen Center. directed that. And right. He's uh, a friend of a friend of mine. Well, I saw, I saw a script reading for it about not that long ago, really, in movie terms. Probably about two years before they made the film. Yeah. So I was real interested to see the film, too. But that that's similar. But I guess that's a big, big subject. And this would make it enough different that he's of Indian descent. But, of course. There's some good gigs here because they, they'll just do little cutaways of the people in the call center getting calls from the biggest idiots in the world. British idiots, of course. Mm -hmm. The only thing that's kind of odd is that the series all takes place during daylight. And if they were talking to people in Britain in daytime, yes. it would be nighttime in Mumbai. Yeah, that that's actually mentioned in the film Outsourced because they get a lot right. of these restaurants start opening up for breakfast but serving dinner food for all these call center employees who are just getting off work and want to chill out before they go home and sleep all day. So, yeah. yeah, so they didn't decide to work around that for whatever reason but there's, for there's the some, show. There's, yeah, there's so some good, good. gigs. They're not great. laying it on very thick, and culturally it's kind of interesting. It wasn't successful by ITV standards. I mean, they sort of bunged it on in the middle of summer. But yeah. uh, is, his love, is Sanjeev's lovely wife Mira in it? Uh, she is a script editor. Because I like her a lot. and So so she's not in it, no. Oh, okay. But she's around. So, you know, ITV, I guess, can get something right, even though I guess they kind of became a poor relation and they had to burn it off during the summer. Hmm. So... Who knows? Well, he had I'd seen a, one episode on one of your tapes shown up of him playing a detective. And I don't know if it... I think that Alan just taped one episode for you a couple of years ago because I was kind of getting into it and I would have watched it again, but I never saw any more episodes of Sanjeev as this detective in detective in London character. But You have to look it up on Wikipedia and see if they mm -hmm. actually made more of them or yeah. not. So our feature this week is the fall and rise of Saturday Night Telly. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Entertainment Weekly had as its cover story, TV's 50 Biggest Bombs and Blunders. It's one that had Jay Leno on the cover. Mm -hmm. At number 48 was Networks Give Up Saturday Night. They said, once upon a time, millions of folks tuned in for powerhouse Saturday night programming like the Love Boat and Mary Tyler Moore Show. Today, the best they can hope for is a rerun of Numbers. Now, I'm old enough to remember Saturday Night Television, and it was great. I mean, you, you had mm -hmm. The Love Boat and Fantasy Island, if you wanted some escapist stuff. Or you could watch the sitcoms on CBS. You have Bob Newhart, MASH, Mary Tyler Moore Show. Great stuff. Was Carol Burnett on Saturday She was on Saturday Night for a while. She was on Tuesdays, and then she's also, she was on, ended up on Saturdays. Because it was very rare I got to watch her, because Saturday Night was go to Grandma and Grandpa's place with Mom and Dad, and we would have dinner, and we would watch 
I would watch the shows that they watched early on Saturday, but usually they'd stick me in bed. I was very young at this time and then wake me up when it was time to go home while they watched Carol Burnett and who knows what else they watched after that. For me, <clears throat> the biggest treat in the world as a kid was that getting to watch some Carol Burnett on a Saturday night. Oh. That was a big deal. So I'm a wee bit younger than you, but yes, I but remember. But you remember when Saturday yeah. night had mm -hmm. good television exactly. on. Exactly. So a lot of what we're going to tell you is taken from a Channel 4 documentary that ran in 2004 called Who Killed Saturday Night Television? That was true at the time. But something happens in 2005 to change all that. Let's take you through it all. Now, unlike in the United States, where the same show can hold a time slot 52 weeks a year, you either have new episodes or repeats. In Britain, there's several different series can come and go in a single year, so don't get too confused if we keep mentioning different shows in the same year. That's a whole big topic, too, to discuss sometimes, pros and cons of that. It's getting more that way now with Lost and 24, where mm -hmm. they basically discover these shows have no rerun ability. And so they just run new episodes and then just they take it off. It's not on all the year. And it's taken American TV a long time to do that. I think probably the success of shows on HBO, because HBO mm -hmm. pretty much has got that now, where they've got a revolving wheel of different shows mm -hmm. that are on in their Sunday night block that come on for 13 weeks and then something else comes on. And the audience says, no, it'll be another year before there's another block yeah. of new episodes. I appreciate that. I like it being kind of an event when your show comes back. And I like the quality of the writing being concentrated into a shorter series. I think they're slowly training American audiences to expect that. I think cable has had a lot to do with that, mm -hmm. though. That cable is the, is the cart leading the horse here in the United States. But in Britain, it's been that way forever. You know, shows would run six or 13 weeks. They take it off. Something else would come on. And then the show would come back on later. In the 1970s, Saturday night was a huge night for television in Britain, and the BBC was king with its knockout combination of the two Ronnies, Mark Yarwood, Match the Day, Duchess of Duke Street, and Parkinson. But anchoring it all was Bruce Forsyth and the Generation Game, which kicked off the evening, typically with 20 million viewers. This family-oriented game show had members of the public of different ages participate in various activities and competitions with Bruce reacting to it all. His catchphrase was, and is, Nice to see you, to see you. How nice. Yes. So Michael Grade was in charge of ITV at the time, and he saw Forsyth as the key to grabbing audiences. So he poached him from the BBC with a huge contract and a deal to present a two-hour variety show each Saturday called Bruce's Big Night. It debuted in 1978 with 14 million viewers tuning into the first episode. Yeah, they mentioned on it, it was a thousand pounds a minute was how they lured him away. Was that speaking for... When he was broadcasting, he would get 60,000 pounds for a show or something? Probably, was, yeah. It was, it was a really... huge, huge contract because he was the BBC's sort of biggest single presenter yeah. at the time. And it was a big deal. That they'd got him. And not long after, they poached Markham and Wise. Mm -hmm. But they didn't put them on Saturdays. They put them on uh, Wednesdays. So they weren't in direct competition with, in, in particular to us. But Markham and Wise had been a mainstay at the BBC for years. Their Christmas special was the most highly anticipated, highest rated thing of the year through the 70s. And it wasn't really the same when they moved to ITV, but at that time, the ITV is writing big checks to win the ratings battles. But the BBC still owned the Generation Game format, and they installed a new host, the Camp Larry Grayson. And viewers loved him, and within six weeks, the Generation Game had twice as many viewers as Bruce's Big Night on ITV. The critics pounced on Forsyth, and ten weeks in, he made an incredible on-air rebuttal to the critics. I mean, he just talked to the audience... Yeah. Saying, you know, they're not being fair to us. You've know, got to understand, you've got to give showtime like to do that. like 20 minutes, yeah. And I, I, what they didn't mention was what was the audience reaction to such a thing? Was there... Well, there are people who liked him. you think there'd be backlash, maybe? Or were they on Brucey's side? You have to also understand this is occurring within the world of the British tabloids, which they like to build you up and then they tear you down. Mm -hmm. And this was, you know, Bruce was making too much money, we're going to tear him down time. And then he'd make more comebacks and stuff like that. So a lot of the British press is driving a very tabloid narrative of, you know, he's the villain, he's the hero. So you have to understand that as a bit of a background. But certainly his big paycheck and big expectations would have uh, led to this. The audience had voted, though, and the big night was canceled after one series, while the Generation Game would peak at 24 million viewers. I loved Larry Grayson. So I would have watched Larry over Brucey, probably, although Brucey... Was very talented and really good singer as well. But the show was sort yeah. of all about him. Right. And Larry Grayson did make it. He really brought out the best in his people on there, too. And he was a bit more humble. And he was 
mature. He'd had this whole life lived before he made it big, and I think he had a great deal of thankfulness and respect for it, too, which kept him humble. And he had the best double take in business, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, comedy was uh, considered an essential ingredient in Saturday Night Viewing in the 1970s, so after, as you say, Morecambe Wise went to ITV, the BBC tried to fill the void with other comedy double acts like Little and Large, who had been discovered on the talent show Opportunity Knocks. They were popular in their own way and managed to run 14 years, but viewers could kind of sense they were being sold second-rate goods. But not to be outdone, ITV countered with its own act, Cannon and Ball. What are the odds that two gents with those last names would meet up and form a double act? They had only been runner-ups on Opportunity Knocks. And Cannon and Ball had a tough road to hoe before getting on their own show, including originally they were being cut out of sketches that were recorded for Bruce's Big Night. And then there was a strike on ITV, which took it off the air completely for several months. Can you imagine a TV station just not broadcasting at all (laughs) because of industrial action? And finally, ITV came back on, and Cannon and Ball got their own show in July of 1979. It garnered 12 million viewers, and it ran until 1991. They were kind of making fun of all these uh, gimmicky double acts. A lot of them came from the music hall mm-hmm. and the piers, sort of 50s and 60s style gentle comedy. They do sketches. They, they had sort of a shtick. It was all very generic, family-oriented, but not very topical humor. Did a lot of them come from the men's clubs up north and then these double acts? I couldn't say. Well, okay, the ones that were an opportunity knocks probably had not done a lot of professional work before mm-hmm. that. So they they were guys who'd sort of gotten together and maybe they had not done the, the whole circuit. So I couldn't tell you exactly. Because there is sort of still a circuit up north for men's clubs, but I don't see a lot of people jumping from that into television. Maybe Peter Kay. And, but it seems probably like in because... years past, in the 70s, that was that case. <clears throat> I think there's a reason why that isn't, and we'll kind of get to that. Okay. Big changes were definitely happening in the comedy scene. 1982 saw the debut of Channel 4 as a television channel. It's, that's when it started broadcasting. And they were specifically designed as alternative to mainstream family viewing programming, which aimed specifically at younger viewers. So in 1985, up against the two runnings on BBC One, Channel 4 launched Saturday Live. It was hosted by Ben Elton, and it introduced the nation to, among others, Fry and Laurie, Harry Enfield, and Julian Clary, and brought the burgeoning alternative comedy movement to people's living rooms. Because they basically went to the comedy store and said, hey, do you guys want to be on TV? And French and Saunders said, yep. Rick Mail and Adrian Edmondson as the Dangerous Brothers yep. were on there as well. So although Saturday Night Live only pulled in three or four million viewers compared to 10 or 13 million watching the main channels, it was clearly speaking to a generation that hadn't seen this kind of material on television prior to it. And for Channel 4, three or four million viewers is all they were really looking for. Mm-hmm. So this mixture of youth and topical political humor only highlighted how dated and out of touch acts like Cannon and Ball and Little and Large, popular as they were. And with a more politically correct 1980s Britain, it kind of hastened their demise. So you were asking about the men's club acts. I just don't think they're politically able to appear on television. They are hearkening back to a kind of a men's working class humor that Mm -hmm. you just don't put on television anymore. It's past its time. But there's an audience for that in those kind of clubs, but not on television. Well, there's Peter Kay, but I think he's sort of two things. He's his stand-up persona, and then he's all his television work as characters. So maybe that accounts for his success. Yeah, on TV, he's not doing that sort of humor. Yeah. Now, he could be one of those guys like Bob Saget who does a funny shtick on TV in a sitcom and then has a completely different persona when he's doing his stand-up. Very, very different than his image as Mr. Clean Cut on television. And that could be the case with Peter Kay as well. But on TV, he's, you know, delivering a TV kind of thing where, yeah. you know, he it's all set in the North. He's not telling, you know, jokes about, you know, take my wife, please, and things like that. So in 1981, ITV, using a former generation game producer, introduced Game for a Laugh, which launched Uh. Jeremy Beadle. He was the Alan Funt of British TV. Game for a Laugh was similar to Candid Camera. You know, members of the public were hoaxed on camera with outrageous situations. So with Game for a Laugh, ITV, for the first time, gained dominance over the now venerable generation game on BBC on Saturday Night Ratings. Now what's ironic is the BBC passed on a show called Gotcha the previous year, and it co-starred Jeremy Beadle in essentially what was the same format as Game for a Laugh. And they just took it over to ITV, and there you go. Gotcha had been considered too vulgar for the BBC. Oops. 
Yep. Or are they regretting that now? <laughs> yeah. Well, in fact, Donald Cotton had convened a meeting when they started seeing the ratings come in for Game for a Laugh and said, how come we can't do something like that? And so, uh, sir, uh, we had a show like that and you didn't want it. So the BBC countered instead by using Radio 1 DJ and Saturday morning children's presenter Noel Edmonds. And the Late Late Breakfast Show appeared in 1982, but it failed in its first incarnation. But it was reformatted to include more segments featuring the general public, much like ITV was doing with Game for a Laugh, and audiences eventually crept up to 16 million. Well, there we go. So in 1984, ITV imported The Price is Right for Saturday night up against Bergerac on the BBC and beat it with an impressive 16 million viewers. Now, apparently they'd been shopping The Price is Right for years, and the attitude in Britain was the whole bit of getting The Price of Right right is the audience has to be whipped up into this frenzy and excitement and energy and adrenaline and British audiences aren't going to do that. And eventually a producer said, well, well, why not? We've got good warm up guys. His secret formula was to stand up and play hope and glory. And everyone was not the national anthem. No, everyone would stand up to the hearts of British public. They would play the song that everyone would stand up. They'd be singing, they'd be cheering. And he said, then we would open up the door. The presenter would come out and it would be the price is right. And that's how they did it. And it looks just like the American version. So the best BBC could do to counter that was blankety blank, which was hosted by Terry Wogan. ITV then created blind date with Scylla black. It was based on an Australian series, but it owes a lot to the dating game. And Blind Date would run for 18 years. But Game for a Laugh kind of burned itself out after three years when all the presenters but Jeremy Beadle quit. They brought in three new presenters. And although the viewing figures at the time were holding at 12 million, it moved to Sunday night and it didn't work there. And it was pretty much gone a year later. They just sort of ran out of things that they could do to the general public. Yeah. I wouldn't have been one of the 12 million, I'm afraid, so yeah, I would have been looking forward to the next phase of Saturday Night TV, which was... We haven't quite got to that yet. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're still on the... Yes, yeah, the Late Late Breakfast Show was still running the BBC, but it suffered its own tragedy when during a rehearsal for a stunt, a participant was killed in 1986, and the show, along with Noel Edmonds, was taken off. And, you know, at this point in history, the 1980s, you know, VCR penetration is really beginning to affect the ratings. People now have more choices than just four terrestrial broadcasters. So the overall ratings for Saturday nights are now starting to kind of go down. But in 1991, Noel Evans was back in Noel's House Party on BBC One. Its most famous gimmick was NTV, where hidden cameras in an unsuspecting viewer's house would suddenly put them live in front of the nation. Basically, they would get a spouse or a housemate or somebody to conspire to hide all these hidden cameras around the house and then make sure the person was watching TV. And no doubt the producers were making sure that nothing embarrassing was going on when Noel suddenly snapped his fingers and they would cut and the person would suddenly realize, oh my God. Did you see one of the clips that the person was holding a cat and that poor cat shot straight up in the air (laughs) off like a... Much like it happens when the phone rings and you suddenly leap up to answer the phone. Well, I think the person shrieked in dismay and off went the cat like a shot. I think it's an occupational habit of being a cat in this world. So in 1993, Noel's house party had 15 million viewers. Alas, I was not one of them. I was living in England in 1993, and I hated house party. It was this noisy, annoying mishmash that I just couldn't believe anybody would watch given a choice. It would give me a headache. <laughs> but clearly, I was in the minority. The idea was on early on in the evening, about from like 6.30 to 7.15, and you've either come back from doing your shopping or you're getting ready to go out. The idea is that most people go out in England on Saturday nights, and so you'd want to have something on that was sort of background noise. You'd have the television on while you're changing, you're walking in and out of the room, so you'd have different segments of stuff. So you never have to, you know, it wasn't like watching a show where you wanted to see the beginning, middle, and end. You just watch 10 minutes at random. And apparently for that, it did really well. But I did not care for it. So in 1994, the BBC grabbed the rights to broadcast the National Lottery Live, and Noel Edmonds presented this hour-long extravaganza, which ended with the lottery drawing. 20 million people watched the premiere, but within a year it was down to 8 million, as viewers realized they just needed to tune in for the last two minutes. But also another liability was the fact that you wouldn't get to see the winners appear in the show. You know, somebody somewhere in you know Cornwall would win, and the newspapers would track them down and have their picture in the papers on Monday morning, but... They just, you know, there's no way of obviously getting them on a TV show when you announce the uh, the winning numbers. 
Unless showing, you know, unlike showing up with a big check, which works in certain promotions. Right. They still show the lottery. It's just, you know, five minutes. They just, you know, cut to it. They say, Here's the national lottery. They run the balls and they go back to another show. So the idea of making his whole hour-long event out of it clearly did not last very long. Noel continued his hidden camera tricks and celebrity pranks over on the house party while Jeremy Beadle would focus on regular people with Beatles About, which got 13 million viewers. The idea is he was doing ordinary people, again, doing stuff right out of Alan Funt's playbook, mm -hmm. having their cars supposedly destroyed, things like that. And of course, then he would come out and, oh, it's Jeremy Beadle. At one point, he was voted the most hated man in Britain. I have to admit, I did laugh, though, when they pushed that fellow's van in the water, which wasn't funny at all. But then he pops out and says, who dropped it with a snorkel and a wetsuit and says, who dropped that van on my head? That was pretty funny. <laughs> but uh, I notice on Room 101 once, somebody turned the tables and asked Paul Merton who he would put in Room 101. And he said, Jeremy Beadle, without batting an eyelash. So... Paul was on our side, too, there. Well, by 1996, the public had gotten tired of Beatles' antics, and he was off the air. Meanwhile, Noel Edmonds' show was increasingly being taken over by Mr. Blobby. Blobby, Blobby, Blobby. A large pink character he had originally invented, but started taking over the whole show. And this kind of heralded the end, and House Party was canceled in 1999, and at that point it had fewer than 8 million viewers. When would Room 101 would have been definitely after Jeremy Beadle was gone, but well, Paul started in '99, I think, he, or 2000, but I think it's itself started in '96 or '97 with Nick Hancock. Right. So I guess he was just the after effect of mm -hmm. Jeremy Beadle. A year before that, uh, TV was a big winner with Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, hosted by Chris Tarrant, the format of which has been exported all over the world and was the focus of the Oscar-winning movie Slumdog Millionaire. And unlike the lottery, you could actually see someone winning a million pounds on television. Yeah, they even made all the hosts wear the monochromatic suits. Oh, yeah. Too. If you bought Everything. the format, you yeah. bought the set, the lighting, the sound effects, the suit. You're not allowed to change anything. That's why it seems so familiar in Slumdog Millionaire. They did quite a bit of tweaking of the show before they actually went live on the air. And one of the last things they did was the show was all very brightly lit, as TV would be. They just said, we, we can't focus in on the person. We want to see them sweating while they're thinking about it. We've got all these graphics and stuff like that. And they finally hit on the idea of turn the lights off. Just have a spotlight on Chris and a spotlight on the contestant. And that's it. You can't see the audience, can't see anything. And that was the secret ingredient that really had to take off. Mm -hmm. In the 1970s, talent shows like New Faces, where judges would grimly deliver their verdicts, They'd been popular, but the format had kind of died out of the 1980s. And then pop stars, imported from Australia by Nigel Lithgow in 2001, revived the genre with 9 million viewers. But still, the judges were picking the winner. Right. But back in the 1980s, the BBC had relaunched Opportunity Knocks, and they had included viewers phoning to vote to affect the outcome, unlike pop stars. So Pop Idol then combined all these elements in 2002, hosted by Ant and Deck, with 13.3 million people watching the finale that year. And it was renamed American Idol for U.S. consumption. You may have heard of it. So reality TV had arrived, along with Big Brother in 2000, which ran every night of the week on Channel 4 whenever the house was occupied. But not all these reality TV shows have been successful. Judgment Day on ITV in 2003 bombed horribly with 3 million viewers and was dumped in after three weeks. Basically, they would bring people out on stage and the audience would just vote right there and just vote them off the stage <laughs> without really knowing anything about them. They would just do it all in an hour. Oh, well. Yep, you need to actually feel something for the people. That's the key to any reality TV show. Yeah, exactly. Being successful, so... In the late 90s and early into the new century, the BBC tried a number of fantasy drama series, including Crime Traveler and a remake of Randall Hopkirk Deceased on Saturday Nights, but none of them stuck. By 2004, ITV was doing pretty well with Ant and Dec's Saturday Takeaway, which was pretty much a 21st century version of House Party. So at this point in the 2004 documentary, it came to a, the grim conclusion that you're never going to again see big popular family entertainment shown again on Saturday Nights. You know, its era had passed. All these pundits weighed in and said, oh, yes, you're never going to see audiences of 24 million again. You know, Noel Edmonds in particular was very skeptical. And he was off the air at that point, but he was a very rich man. And don't worry, because he makes a comeback of all things and deal or no deal, which is still running over there. Has it already stopped here? 
I didn't. There's really a syndicated it. version of it. Okay. It's on five nights a week. But did the did they just kill it like they did with Millionaire with running? Yeah, it's crazy? not on NBC anymore. Yeah. Okay. So in 2003, BBC News Online Have Your Say asked about the decline of Saturday night television and asked viewers what they thought thought should be done. We'll post a link to that article here in the show notes and you can see for yourself what was on people's minds seven years ago. So it's 2004. Saturday night TV is dead and buried. They've even made a documentary about its demise. But wait! Russell T. Davies and some BBC producers and executives didn't believe there wasn't an audience for family dramas, and so in that belief, they brought back Doctor Who in 2005. That was a good idea. Oh, of course it was a good idea! (laughs) They'll admit now they were a little anxious about it, and possibly they were worried that maybe only four million people might watch and we're going to end up on Sunday afternoons. Because after all, except for the TV movie in 1996, it had been off the air for 16 years at this point. But over 10 million people tuned in for the first episode and it became a cultural phenomenon with the first series starring Christopher Eccleston. But so now, building on the success of Doctor Who, the BBC has a rotating slate of early Saturday evening series, including Robin Hood and Merlin. The conventional wisdom was wrong. The truth was, if you give the public quality entertainment, they will watch it. So Strictly Come Dancing, hosted by Bruce Forsyth again on the BBC, has brought us full circle, again making him a fixture on Saturday nights. Yeah, sure there's only like 8 million people watching compared with 20 million back in the 1970s, but that's television environment that we're living in. Saturday Night Telly has made a comeback, in Britain at least. Maybe some canny producer can do the same in the United States too someday. I read that Bruce thought his recent comeback actually started when he was asked to guest host have i got news for you and was so obviously loved by the audience that the bbc people thought hmm we have to get him back on television so he has nothing but great words to say about that experience it could be you know doctor who was not in existing in a vacuum either they had done a very successful comic relief sketch called The Curse of the Fatal Death, written by Stephen Moffat, with Rowan Atkinson as the doctor, and that had been one of the highest-rated segments of comic relief that year. So there was some vague awareness, maybe people want Doctor Who to see Doctor Who again. They had launched an audio series that was going to star Richard E. Grant as the doctor. Actually, it was more like an internet series because they had animation along with the audio. And that was going to be the new Doctor Who as far as they were concerned. And then the TV series took that overall. That became the official canon, official BBC Doctor Who. And we're all thankful for that. So, yeah, they've got the audiences back on Saturday night. And Doctor Who can peak at, you know, 10 million viewers. So Well, another reason that in the documentary that they mentioned viewership falling besides them not finding the TV compelling anymore was that Britain as a whole had more money to go out on Saturday nights than with so many people off work in the 70s. And there used to be, in my mind anyway, a much wider gap between working class and middle class too. And some people didn't have a lot of discretionary income. But you definitely say that unlike the United States where Saturday Night TV is well and truly dead. It is, it is a dead TV. Mm-hmm. It is singing in the choir eternal. That is a dead TV night. In Britain, it is alive and kicking still. They're putting a lot of money and effort into producing quality television there. Not everybody's going out or not out the whole night. And I think that shows that you shouldn't give up on a night of television. Yeah, well, they that was part of the point was, oh, we have to, we're sort of giving up because people go out now. They don't stay home on Saturday night. But that was proved untrue. Yes. It just has to be quality stuff. And even if they go out for part of the night, put on Doctor Who when they're getting ready, and they'll stop and sit down and watch it. And... Well, interesting, the, the ratings for Doctor Who get better the later it's on, because oh, sometimes yeah. it gets pushed okay, a little early to, well, they can't be on too late, but if it's on before 7 o'clock, the ratings tend to go down a little bit, and if it's on after 7 o'clock, it usually stays pretty steady. And of course, Britain's Got Talent tends to blow it out of the water as well, so the talent shows, right now you have the Battle of Talent shows where Britain's Got Talent, and then Strictly Come Dancing on BBC kind of going for each other. And they get both get very high viewing figures. People will watch what they want to watch. You just have to put it on. So we'll stop nagging the executives at American TV. who are clearly not listening to this podcast. But American TV, don't remake Doctor Who, please. I don't think it's going to happen. (laughs) Next week, 
On February 19th, it's the 25th anniversary of arguably the BBC's most popular series, EastEnders. Now, even though Christy and I know next to nothing about the soap, we acknowledge its continued popularity in Britain and the United States, where, so I'm told, fans pass around episodes on DVD so they can keep up on it. It reminds me of the good old days of Doctor Who back in the 1980s. Because for a while, you know, a lot of PBS stations were running EastEnders, and my understanding was the BBC started asking for way too much money, and PBS, this each individual station, just said, we can't afford that, and they, they took it off. Yeah, I remember that on the one that is based in Tacoma, they would have nights fundraising specifically for the money to buy EastEnders for another six months. Yeah, because they sort of pay as you go. Yeah. As you know, uh, public television in this country, except for the network stuff like Masterpiece Theater and Mystery and Nova and McNeil Lair, is up to the individual stations to buy. And if they want to run a series, they've got to pay for it at the, out of their own pocket. And that's why you get... 250 PBS stations, all with 250 different schedules of what they're going to show. So, yeah, EastEnders just got too expensive, which is kind of silly because now nobody's running it here. They, they, they lost their income stream. And you have people pirating the show, who, Americans who got hooked on it, and they want to see it. Well, maybe it'll be pay-per-view online soon. Put it on it iTunes! Yeah. Look, rather than these people pirating EastEnders, put every episode on iTunes and charge 99 cents an episode. The money would go back to the BBC. There you go. But anyway, next week, we'll talk about EastEnders. Hopefully, it won't be uh, quite like, what is Burn Notice? Did you see that last week on Saturday Night Live? No. <laughs> they, they had a game show, and it was just, a, it, all they asked people was, what is Burn Notice? What, the eighth most popular show on cable. Mm-hmm. It's been running for four years. It gets eight million viewers. But what is Burn Notice? And nobody knew what it was. Of course, it's a spy action series yeah. that runs on Thursday nights. I, I like Bruce Campbell's in Burn Notice. It's great. Hopefully, we won't just play cricket for 20 minutes because Chrissy and I don't know anything about EastEnders. But we will find some EastEnders fans. I will uh, go out there. If you're out there an EastEnders fan and like to talk about EastEnders, drop me a line at feedback at BritishTVPodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. And I will uh, beat the bushes here to bring you some information about EastEnders because I think 25 years on TV is worth acknowledging. That's true. So that'll be next week. And if anything, to take our mind off the Olympics. Are you going to watch the Olympics? Probably not, no. Yeah, I've got noticed in sports, so. I used to follow ice skating a lot in the 80s. In fact, I even learned to ice skate as an adult because I was enjoying it so much one year, an Olympics year. But I haven't been following it for a while. And I've got too much British telly to watch and big stack of books from Albrus to read. That's probably what I'll be doing the next few weeks in my Free time. Okay. Come to our website, BritishTVPodcast.com. You can get links to news articles, which I'd update as much as possible, show notes, what's on TV this week, and an archive of old shows. And feel free to write about us on your blogs or Facebook pages or whatever. We'd love all the shameless promotion that we can get or rate us on iTunes. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. That we will. Bye-bye.